Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Douglas and Sarah Allison Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions. Uh, For our in-house guests, we would ask that courtesy check that our mobile devices have been silenced as we prepare to begin. And, of course, those watching online are welcome to send questions or comments at any time, simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. And we will, of course, post this program along with the other programs in this series as part of the Heritage homepage for everyone's future reference. Leading our discussion and opening our session today is Becky Norton Dunlop, who serves Heritage as the Ronald Reagan Distinguished Fellow. She's a conservative movement leader, has advocated for Heritage's American conservative ethic, and she also advances energy and natural resources policy in general, She has been an active board member for numerous public policy organizations and associations. She previously served Heritage as Vice President for External Relations and most recently led our Restore America project. She served in 1998, uh, before joining in 1998, she had served in the cabinet of Governor George Allen as his Secretary for Natural Resources, and she has also served in the Reagan administration in the Office of Presidential Personnel and Cabinet Affairs at the White House, working for Attorney General Edwin Meese at the Department of Justice, and then later serving with Don Hodel at the Department of Interior. Please join me in welcoming Becky Norton Dunlop. Becky? Thank you very much, uh, John, and let me add my welcome to everyone who is here today. Uh, We are delighted to be having this series of programs on honoring Ronald Reagan's legacy. Uh, You know, his often mocked strategy of peace through strength won the Cold War. And critical to that success were his nuclear deterrent policies. By both modernizing our strategic nuclear deterrence while also initiating what would become a nearly 90% reduction in American and Soviet, now Russian, deployed strategic nuclear warheads, he changed the strategic nuclear landscape. Uh, Today we're going to be joined by speakers who worked in the Reagan administration on these policies to kind of lay the groundwork for what President Reagan's vision, his ideas, and his actions did to lay the groundwork for the change in the way we looked at the world and the world looked at us and the foundation on which we should be building for today. As I was preparing for this program, I pulled out my copy of An American Life by Ronald Reagan, and I just wanted to pull a few threads from the fabric of his uh, great uh, uh, biography here. Uh, He says, 
If I had to choose the single most important reason on the United States side for the historic breakthroughs that were to occur during the next five years in the quest for peace and a better relationship with the Soviet Union, I would say it was the strategic defense initiative along with the overall modernization of our military force. He goes on to then say, we knew we would never get anywhere with them at the arms control table if we went there in a position of military inferiority. If we were going to get them to sue for peace, we had to do it from a position of strength. That's why peace through strength became one of the mottos of our administration. And then he goes on in his book to reference the great speech that he gave to the British Parliament and another one he gave at Eureka College. And I would just urge all of those who are here today who are watching this uh, a video or watching this on television or, or the Internet to go and pull these two speeches, the one he gave to the British Parliament and the one he gave at Eureka College, to get a very clear understanding in his own words of what his thinking was uh, during that time. Uh, and also, I might add, if you don't have a copy of An American Life, you might add that to your library uh, as well. Well, the way we're going to organize the program today, I'm going to introduce the first two speakers. They're going to come up and give you about 20 minutes of remarks from their perspective on this uh, thinking of President Reagan, his ideas, his vision, and his accomplishments. And then I'll introduce uh, my co-host, Peter Husey, who will then come up uh, and introduce the three panelists who will then give uh, briefer remarks, but nevertheless important remarks, and then we'll open it up for questions and, and discussion. The first two speakers today are Sven Kramer. Uh, Sven has been with us here at the Heritage Foundation before. Uh, he was born in England and educated at Harvard and the University of California, Berkeley. He served with distinction as a civil servant in eight administrations with six presidents. Uh, he was with President Reagan as NSC Director of Arms Control. Uh, he has written a brilliant book. When I say written, he has compiled so many of the important documents of history. Uh, it's a small tome. Uh, and again, if you're a student of history, it's something that you might want to have uh, in your library. Or if you wonder how President Reagan was successful a lot of these documents that he refers to or has in his material are original documents, and they're very useful for historians to study. That uh, was inside the Cold War from Marx to Reagan. Uh, he, uh, as I say, served in the NSC with President Reagan, uh, and he will bring us the perspectives from someone inside working closely uh, on these issues. Uh, our second presenter then will be Mark Schneider. Uh, Mark was a member of the the State Department policy staff uh, in the Reagan administration from 1981 to 83. He then served as special counsel to Richard Pearl, who was a senior official in the Defense Department of 83 and 84, and was the director of strategic arms control policy from 84 uh, to 89. So I'll ask Sven to come first to the podium, followed by Mark, uh, and then I'll return to uh, introduce uh, Peter. Sven?
Thank you, Becky, and congratulations for, and thanks also for running this series on the Reagan legacy, honoring the Reagan, Reagan legacy, and trying to teach to new generations, like those I see in front of me, almost everybody's younger than I, the lessons the of his initiatives, of his decisions. Also a bit about the difficulties he had within the administration and in the Congress and, of course, with the media and the ac academy, where he was still, by and large, not necessarily in, in the bureaucracy, but he was called a bozo, an incompetent, a warmonger, a conservative, a Republican, which were not so popular with the established uh, leaders in the institutions that I mentioned. That's forgotten now. It's also called, for some reason, the 80s are called the me decade. I, th I think it was the we decade. I think the next one was more like the me decade. Uh, and he came to this job as president very well prepared, unusually well prepared. First of all, he, he started out as a lifeguard. A lifeguard has to make decisions quickly. There might matters of life and death. He was also, during the Second World War, an actor who made films for the American troops on how and why to fight the totalitarians, Japanese, and the National Socialists of Germany. By the way, they were called Nazis, Nationalsozialisten. They were not fascists. The fascists were run by Mr. Mussolini in Italy, and as far as I know, the Italian fronts were not very active. So. He fought National Socialism in its various forms, which in, I think Communism and National Socialism are very strongly related. He early turned on anti-communist because his own labor union, the Actors' Union, in 1947-50, in that period, was being infiltrated. And he, he knew that there were active measures, efforts by the Soviets, in addition to the fact that they were colonizing Eastern Europe, Stalinizing it. And so he was inbred as a freedom fighter. And the platform that he wrote, and I participated in it, there were four of us who did the final versions. I was working with Senator Tower, Republican Policy Committee, Bill Schneider, John Lehman, Bud McFarlane, and we worked with Bill Van Cleve in the transition and the campaign and Dick Allen. And you ought to read that platform. I have it in my book as the major first statement of Reagan's strategy. And incidentally, the section that deals with foreign policy, foreign affairs, is called Peace and Freedom. So I always talk about his strategy as being the strategy of peace and freedom through strength. They were absolutely interconnected. And the, he knew there couldn't be peace without freedom, and there couldn't be freedom without peace. They were interrelated. You couldn't, as a non-freedom fighter, fight for peace, and, and give it maybe a totalitarian version. Um, so the platform on which he ran, and which nobody seemed to remember now, and which during the first days of the administration I read parts of it, excerpts, when I went as a representative of the NSC to the interagency meetings, which were chaotic. There was no discipline. Everybody said whatever they felt like it. There was no, there were no, no guidance. And the president's first um, crisis-type NSC meetings were on areas I did not work. I worked in the what was called the defense cluster, 
and I took the mantle of arms control. Um, that didn't come till about March, June. Let me just say that the platform, in the platform, we who worked on it put arms control into the defense section, not into the foreign affairs section, defense. And if you read the guidance on arms control in the platform and in all of the president's speeches, it was always an issue of defense. You can't do arms control without securing, providing for the common defense. And that was way behind, very much depleted, very weak, because of the procrastination and confusion of the Carter administration, which preceded him, who had cut back major programs, especially strategic modernization, nuclear things. And these were all called out by the president. And, and so arms control was not treated at the beginning as a major separate issue. It was treated, the first priority that the administration had, and this is visible already in March of 81, a few months into his inauguration, was plussing up the defense budget, modernizing it. And so Secretary Weinberger was called Cap the Knife, but was actually a very, became a very strong supporter of a strong defense, bulwarked it, 17% increase in the budget, and, and specifically funding the programs that Carter had cut, uh, the, the missile programs, MX and the bomber program, and, the, and also implying, and that became very explicit later on, that the framework of arms control that Mr. Carter had, and quite specifically his start assault two treaty of 1979, was no longer the guiding way of talking to the Soviets. Uh, that treaty was withdrawn by, by Mr. Carter because of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and all kinds of negotiations stopped. And this actually gave oppor an opportunity to Mr. Reagan. I call him Mr. because that's we we quickly call him. He was informal enough when you talked to him, and when you were even in, in highfalutin places with cabinet-level people, he was so, he was informal. He would ask very <laughs> tough questions of people, and, and he, he was very funny, too. And he was really quite decisive once he had the options laid out for him verbally and then in the short papers that we had to write. I would write one-page uh, summaries of a seven- or eight-page interagency plotting paper and cover the things that we had called bracketed language, which means diversions opposition. And he loved to have those spelled out, maybe on the second page of, of some differences differences in the uh, interagency system. State Department was always contesting with uh, defense. The CIA was worried about certain things. The JCS had their own views. And he tried to integrate. And I believe he successfully integrated. And we as a staff tried to integrate and did succeed. Defense, arms control, and things I have not yet mentioned, which he also integrated, and which I personally felt very committed to, the moral, the moral aspects of what we were doing and the strategic. So the ethical things were also tied in with his freedom concepts. And so the city on a hill, which was Western civilization, freedom, uh, 
in the United States particularly, but also really in England and other democracies. Uh, that was always the perspective from which he did whatever he did. And in the sense, he was a lifeguard for his country because his initiatives turned things around. The assumptions were turned around. How do, how do you deal with the Soviet Union? All the concessions, the kissy kissy kumbaya approach of the previous decade called the detente didn't work. And in the area of um, nuclear weapons in particular, he was very well aware when he came, became president already as a campaigner that the treaty signed by Mr. Nixon, and I happen to value Mr. Nixon as a president. I worked for him in the White House. I worked for Mr. Johnson, Mr. Nixon, and Jerry Ford in the White House. I was on the NSC. I've been there longer than anybody else in, the, in, the, in this country. I think Bob Gates comes next. Um, the... In the summit in 1972, Nixon signed three treaties. The first was a st the uh, START Treaty, which basically froze some numbers but didn't make real reductions and was not effectively verifiable beyond national technical means, means no on-site inspections. The, the second treaty was the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which I already then opposed very strongly on moral grounds because it, it was wedded to the doctrine of mutual assured destruction, which I personally, as a staff member and as somebody who has experienced war firsthand, first as a child in Second World War Europe, where the first Americans I met were bombing the hell out of my neighborhood because I was a British child hostage in Germany. And uh, it seemed to me that when they met, the next Americans I met, who included my own father, who had escaped and came back as an American soldier, killing and liberating his former countrymen, that one had to be very, very much aware of preventing totalitarians from using as a bargain chip their superiority, their military superiority, and their cheating. And the Russians cheated on almost everything they did, certainly in arms control. And so when we re-examined in the spring of um, 81 and 2, and then through 82, what to do with the Russian asymmetric challenge, look at the chart I have on the wall there. It, it, they present, it presents 25 years when the Russians built and built and built, and we, especially after we signed those summit agreements, the two I mentioned, and the third one was being the peaceful coexistence principles of detente agreement, which was violated in human rights in every other area. Mr. Nixon had correctly tried to link these things, but I think he should not have signed on to curtailing our defenses, defense missiles, uh, as were banned by the ABM treaty. We should, in fact, have been very robust on it. And so the strategic defense initiative, which Becky mentioned before, was a part and parcel of arms control to me, it was the greatest arms control initiative that's ever been offered because it prevents offensive missiles from being used against you instead of turned. And by the way, it's very expensive and requires some technical know-how that other guys who might be getting proliferation can't, can't quite match. So uh, these were linked together from, from the start in Reagan's mind and in our mind. And the people who fought either modernization like the MX missile and Peter Husey was involved with Senator Nunn at the time, a Democratic leader, uh, to get that going. 
Um, they, uh, these things were linked in, in, in our mind. You, you, you had to have modernization and you had to have reductions in arms control, in arms, and you had to have effective verification, which is a new standard that we got the president to sign on to. Not adequate verification, not national technical means, but effective. And I defined it, and that was adopted, as the CIA having high confidence, high confidence, not just confidence, high confidence in being able to monitor and verify every single provision in the darn treaties that we proposed. We also got through, this is in 1982, um, the notion of having the JCS have to certify the military sufficiency of everything we did in arms control. Would the United States still be able to fend off and would it prevail in attacks? Those are new, new standards. And uh, then the proposals that were made at Eureka in, in, uh, in 1982, deep cuts, deep reductions. They had been preceded, however, by the INF Treaty, which was in 81, in the fall, where we did, did not favor, in the, in the NSCs anyway, the Pentagon and, and the NSC did not favor the freeze option, nuclear freeze option, which was promoted by certain other places in the government, even in high places, um, and proposed instead a zero option where we got the systems that we didn't want mainly the Soviet SS-20 out of the way, by going down to zero ourselves and having eliminating a whole class of systems. And that was a very strong new approach, and it just shook the whole Soviet attitude and system about postponing, procrastinating, and they thought we couldn't hold the Allies. But one of the things that we did, and incidentally, as an NSC person, I got myself invited in the first NATO meeting Vice Secretary Weinberger to be on the plane with him and his delegation, Richard Pearl and others. And we really briefed and worked the Allies to get out of the nuclear freeze, which was dominating their parliaments and their streets, and to get for deployment of new INF systems, intermediate nuclear force systems. That was a very good beginning to the major initiatives. And it was followed in uh, March of 19. 83 by the Strategic Defense Initiative, which was part and parcel of that, uh, to get us national systems for defense. I have other charts, and if I had a, an hour, I would run through some of the things that then happened. I'll just mention one other thing, which is in the area of nuclear testing. Nuclear testing. The When, when we came into the White House, um, the State Department and others, who had also mostly favored the freeze, um, wanted to go for a comprehensive test ban. They wanted ratification immediately of two treaties that Mr. Ford had done, limited test ban and te uh, threshold test ban treaties, um, no, peaceful nuclear explosions treaty, and there was a trust ban treaty that was apparently not being complied with. And all these treaties for, for just banning nuclear tests even down to the subcritical level, tiny little ones, underground. Uh, Reagan, who was not a nuclear abolitionist at all, although one of the most senior people in the Reagan administration wrote a book in which he constantly says uh, Reagan wanted to abolish nuclear weapons. He didn't. He wanted a nuclear deterrent, 
and he wanted to abolish the threat of nuclear the threat of nuclear weapons. And he said, as a long-term objective, we, of course, in a less dangerous world, and especially he would link it usually with a free world, mm -hmm. with a reform or ch radical change in the Soviet posture, we could consider that. And when he said no nuclear, no nuclear war can be won, must ever be fought and can, cannot be won, and he said that twice at the UN and in Japan, of all places, in 1983, that's what he meant. We, we must use our weapons for deterrence. We must use them as an incentive for arms control, for arms reductions. And we must have those effectively verified and, and supported by the Congress. He didn't do what Nixon did with his Stark Salt Treaty, who didn't dare submit it to the Congress because they would have not passed it. And Carter withdrew his from the Congress. Reagan, when he had arms reductions and arms control and SDI programs, brought them to the Congress, and we were up there briefing all the time and negotiating with the, with the Congress, his political opposition, his academic and uh, clerical opposition, and it worked. It worked sufficiently to put pressure not on the first three Soviet prime ministers that uh, were encountered by Reagan, but on Mr. Gorbachev, who was a party intellectual, didn't quite understand what hit him when Reagan came, and certainly didn't understand how quickly we were building up our forces after, after a very dormant period. I believe Gorbachev lost his cool when he re tried to undertake necessary reforms, perestroika, which was redoing everything, really, within the party, with the party dominant. It's like what the Chinese are trying to do. Just keep the party in control. Reform it. Corruption and other things. But once you open up a society with something called glasnost, you're going to lose the totalitarian ability to shoot the opposition and imprison it immediately. And when the Chinese in 1989, towards the end of, at the end of um, Reagan's period, shot in 62 cities, the people rising against that totalitarian system, what Gorbachev did when the wall was threatened and when Eastern Europe uprisings became real, he lost the nerve to shoot. And the reason I, did, I think he did was that he realized already a little bit before that that his economic system of socialism, and they called it the socialist camp, they didn't call it the communist camp, um, wasn't working. It couldn't keep up. Free, a free world, a free economy, a free political parliamentary system, free labor unions. Can't, that's necessary to make progress, to make radical change possible. And they, this, Mr. Gorbachev was intelligent enough, but not cruel enough to react to the fact that he was going to be losing his whole faith, his doctrinal foundations, as were his partners there who were running the Soviet Union for 40 or 50 years, um, and that Lenin's truths were not truth and so on, he, he caved. And he caved enough so that there was a coup attempt against him and that failed and then it was all over. I believe then in the 90s, frankly, and for the next decade, for sure, the United States wasted its Cold War victory and so did the Allies. And what I see today in, in Russia, makes me worry all the time because you could take that chart that I have on the wall and Mark Schneider can update it for you 
we are in a tough situation. The Chinese not stop producing new lines of weapons and strategically uh, global reach, imperial reach. And the, the, the Russians uh, certainly have uh, dominate, tried to dominate or infiltrate their neighbors, and of course they, they're all over the world. So what we need are the freedom and peace. They're integrated, moral and strategic uh, criteria, and then we can get close to what Reagan did, and I think applaud the fact that he provided for the common defense and secured the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity. privilege um, in the 1980s uh, to work for uh, someone who was uh, certainly the greatest American president uh, of the 20th century and, and one of the greatest uh, in American history, as just every one of the speakers uh, on uh, this panel have. And uh, they all, I would add, made a major contribution uh, to the development of some very sensible and, and uh, very important policies that ultimately contributed uh, to the demise of, of the Soviet Union, prevented a nuclear war, uh, and um, um, advanced uh, American uh, interests uh, across the board. Um, th as Sven noted, there are efforts today to portray Ronald Reagan as a nuclear zero president. I mean, that's nonsense. Um, Reagan um, advanced a... Um, an approach to dealing with the Soviet nuclear threat, which fundamentally um, changed what was going on in the 1970s. Uh, it was called at the time peace through strength, and I believe that's a pretty good description of what he was talking about. His policies involved the modernization of all legs of our, our nuclear triad in a manner that enhanced uh, national security and strategic uh, stability. Uh, they went beyond that. Uh, he he deployed um, nuclear slickums widely, uh, the sub, that's ship-launched cruise missiles, widely uh, uh, in Navy, both on surface and, and ships and submarines. He deployed the uh, medium-range uh, nuclear missiles to Europe that uh, resulted in, in the INF Treaty. Um, and he deployed new nuclear artillery. So to call him a, a, a nuclear zero guy is just complete. Uh, nonsense. And, he, and, as, and as Sven um, uh, noted, he pursued a, um, a, a uh, policy on arms control uh, in which arms control was seen in, in terms of defense policy um, rather uh, than as an end of itself or an, an ideological quest for, for some utopia. Um, Reagan's uh, strategic defense initiative uh, revived the rather moribund um, U.S. missile defense program of the Cauda era and began the development of the technologies that now protect us against North Korea and defend our forward-based um, uh, forces and, and our allies against the growing theater, um, nuclear, and other forms of WMD attack. 
Um, we still have a very long way to go, but I, I would ask you to consider where we would be today if our missile defense capabilities were based on the legacy Carter program, which was little more than a single underfunded um, program to develop a short-range interceptor to, to defend Minuteman ICBMs. That was a fundamental change in, in direction under Reagan. The world that Reagan inherited in 1981 was bipolar and very dangerous. Uh, many of the threats that we see today uh, were already developing, but they were not yet seen as, as uh, serious threats. Soviet Union was an ideologically hostile communist dictatorship, which was in the process of spending itself into Bolivia, oblivion in, in war preparations, made worse by the debilitating effects of uh, socialism on their economy. During the Bush administration, um, then-Russian Defense Minister Colonel General Sergei Ivanov stated that uh, in the 1980s, the Soviet military uh, budget um, reached 40% of, of the, the Soviet GNP, which is incredible when you put this in, in perspective of U.S. Uh, expenditures. I mean, U.S. military expenditures peaked at 43 percent of GNP during uh, one year in World War II. In the 1950s, it was 10 percent. From that point, it, it declined uh, to 5 percent um, in um, the, um, the Carter administration, which of course produced what was called at the time the Hull Army, or uh, ships that couldn't sail and planes that couldn't fly. Fortunately, we're almost back to that now in some respects. Um, the, um, we used technology uh, in, in the 1980s to compensate for the large disparity in, in the level of effort that was going on, in, particularly in the, in the nuclear arena. Uh, President Reagan uh, presented um, uh, the Soviet Union um, with a, a significant military challenge that convinced them um, that they could not win, although they never uh, gave up trying to, to create that sort of capability. Reagan did not end history, but he did create the circumstances in which communism ended in Russia and as a major force uh, in the world. Faced with a massive uh, nuclear buildup by the Soviet Union, President Reagan engaged in the most comprehensive U.S. modernization uh, since the 1980s. Um, although it wasn't, uh, I believe, even remotely comparable to the scale of what the Soviets were doing, it did create a very effective deterrent uh, to nuclear war. Uh, the administration um, uh, continued the late Carter administration policies uh, on, on deterrent systems. Uh, that included the, the MX or Peacekeeper ICBM, the AGM X, X, uh, excuse me, AGM 86B nuclear outcome, and the Ohio class ballistic missile um, submarines and the Trident II, which the Reagan administration decided to make the largest and most powerful missile that could fit into the submarine. Uh, the, the Reagan administration added the stealthy uh, advanced cruise missile, the B-2 stealth bomber, the SRAM-2 defense uh, suppression weapon for bombers and tactical aircraft, and for a time, the so-called uh, Midget Man uh, ICBM was part of the nuclear modernization program, or the strategic nuclear modernization pro program. 
Fortunately, much of it was uh, terminated or dramatically reduced by subsequent administrations, which made a series of, of bad decisions on nuclear deterrence and national security policies, which in some respects contribute to the uh, current uh, crisis uh, we have with uh, Putin's Russia. Um, President Reagan's planned uh, strategic nuclear force was reduced by subsequent administrations by 85% in terms of warhead numbers, the MX, um, later called the Peacekeeper, and the advanced cruise um, missile um, were terminated uh, uh, without any um, uh, replacement, um, as was the nuclear capability of the, the B-1 bomber. SRAM-2 program was terminated and the SRAM uh, was retired without replacement. The only parts of the Reagan nuclear modernization, and they are very important parts, obviously, to survive subsequent administrations was the Ohio-class uh, submarine tried in two combination without the large number of counterforce warheads that were planned under the Reagan administration and uh, 22 B-2 bomber, 20 B-2 bombers without their SRAM missiles. I believe uh, President Reagan would have uh, adjusted downward our nuclear deterrence requirements at the end of the Cold War, but not to remotely to the extent uh, that uh, actually happened. He would never have allowed a 20-year uh, moratorium on U.S. nuclear deterrent modernization or allowed the Russians to get a tenfold uh, advantage uh, in non-strategic uh, nuclear weapons. We know that because he didn't do that. He did just the opposite. Um, indeed, uh, the, the weapons that were pulled out of Europe as part of the presidential nuclear uh, initiatives were mainly built and put there by the Reagan administration. Um, the uh, 2018 Nuclear Posture Review confirms reports that go back to 2004 that, quote, Russia is in violation of its political commitments uh, that directly affect the security of of others, uh, including the 1991 presidential nuclear uh, initiatives. Um, these uh, eliminated our battlefield and much of our, uh, of our non-strategic naval uh, strike capability. Um, the, um, the PNIs are a major reason uh, that Russia has a, a 10 to 1 advantage today in, in the number of uh, tactical nuclear weapons. We know uh, that Reagan would have taken action uh, in the face of such a violation um, because uh, he actually did um, with regard to uh, somewhat similar issues that, are, that arose uh, during uh, the uh, 1970s and 1980s involving the SALT 1 and 2 uh, agreements on strategic offensive forces. Reagan took nuclear deterrence very seriously. He saw both nuclear weapons and missile defense as part of his deterrence strategy and, and indeed as a, a major hedge in arms control. Uh, the Reagan nuclear modernization uh, uh, programs were not done to finance the, the military-industrial complex, but rather um, to deal with a nuclear threat uh, through deterrence, and that threat was very r real and actually worse than we thought it was in, in the time period. Uh, today you can find the Warsaw Pact, or at least parts, major parts of, of their war plan on the internet. Uh, they've been made uh, available, certain number by declassified uh, Russian government documents and a larger number as a, 
as a result of the end of the Warsaw Pact and, and the Czech and Polish governments uh, uh, released uh, their um, their uh, their Cold War uh, Warsaw Pact documents. Some of it's been um, translated into English. Uh, then Secretary of Defense Caspar Weinberger stated in his annual report um, um, to the Congress in 1985, quote, if we are to maintain a responsible nuclear deterrent against attack on our allies as well as against nuclear attacks on the United States, we have to continue to exploit our comparative advantage in technology. Uh, since the end of the Reagan administration, we've allowed uh, this to erode. Um, indeed, um, late in, in the, um, um, the Obama administration, senior Pentagon officials uh, talked about our losing our lead in, in technology. I mean, they were talking uh, generally, not about nuclear uh, um, in specific. In, in the nuclear area, we've actually allowed our position to uh, decline in, in terms of technology because we retire some of the most advanced systems that were developed and, and deployed uh, under the Reagan administration and, and uh, in the years, some of them in the years uh, somewhat beyond that. Uh, today, Russia and China have massive nuclear modernization programs, and, and that's, by the way, the description of the Russian program by the Russian defense minister in late 2017. Um, in... Um, uh, 2016, uh, the o Obama administration uh, told the Congress that the Chinese have announced the existence of a new nuclear version of the DF-26 IRBM, which would give China, quote, nuclear precision strike capability against their targets. We have none at this point in time at any level of our, of our nuclear turret. We do not have a single deployed uh, precision uh, nuclear weapon. And who would have believed that? was going to happen in the 1980s. And, and it happened because we, um, uh, we reversed um, Reagan uh, nuclear deterrence policies. Um, the um, 2018 um, nuclear uh, posture review, I think, is the best government uh, discussion of, of uh, the nuclear deterrence problem. And uh, it deals with problems that uh, it also deals with problems which are um, post Reagan, but uh, I believe the um, the um, statements um, you uh, will read if you go back and read of the uh, Reagan administration uh, statements to Congress on defense. And here you have special uh, kudos to Frank Miller's, whose office wrote these things. They are really high quality, and they have continued relevance to deterring um, Russia today. The Reagan administration, as Sven Kramer uh, has pointed out, broke with the um, um, 1970s approach uh, to uh, arms control. Uh, as, as then Assistant Secretary of Defense um, Richard Pearl stated, uh, we have to have clear objectives, militarily significant outcomes, and agreements that are equal and verifiable. Uh, he also pointed out that the charge of lack of seriousness uh, uh, by the Reagan administration on arms control, quote, amounts to little more than that we modify our proposals to permit the Soviets to retain a vastly larger strategic arsenal uh, than the levels the administration has proposed. Um, the people who criticized Reagan on arms control came into power in, in 1993. 
they failed to get the uh, Star II Treaty, um, which was negotiated by the George H.W. Bush administration, into and ratified and into force. Um, and um, they failed in their efforts to conclude a, a, a Star III Treaty, which was to go beyond that. Uh, they did manage to negotiate uh, the only arms control agreement uh, to be rejected by um, a majority of the Senate, the Comprehensive Test Ban, or, or CTBT. This is a classic example, and, and I think Sven also noted this in his talk, about uh, how um, the um, uh, approach of the, of the Reagan administration uh, saw arms control as a part of a, a security agenda, not as an ideological cru uh, crusade. Um, in the 1980s, uh, there was only a single uh, nuclear weapons designer at uh, uh, the national laboratories who believed that you could uh, maintain a nuclear deterrent, even with testing uh, allowed up to the one kiloton or 1,000 tons of TNT level, which I would add is not exactly a zero-yield uh, CTBT. In a 2012 talk delivered at the Heritage Foundation, um, the um, uh, Ambassador Paul uh, Robinson, who was involved in the negotiation itself and at the time of, of, of the ratification, attempted ratification of CTBT, uh, he was the director of Sandia National Laboratory, and he said that in 1995, quote, we in the U.S. labs requested that the permitted test uh, level should be set at a level which is in fact lower than one kiloton limit, which would uh, have allowed us to run some very important experiments in our view to determine whether the first stage of multi-stage weapons, which is thermonuclear weapons, the only type we have, uh, was indeed operating successfully. If, if the first stage uh, fails, um, you basically have a dud. Uh, Reagan and uh, revolutionized our, our, our uh, approach to arms control compliance, as, as uh, Sven uh, has uh, mentioned. Um, he um, actually responded uh, to uh, Russian violations of the SALT treaties in 1986 by terminating U.S. adherence to them under a, a no, uh, an agreed with Russia or Soviet Union, no undercut policy. Um, we didn't enter into arms control uh, agreements um, in uh, the uh, 1980s without serious preparation and certification of everything we tabled by the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That did not happen in the Obama administration. We en ended up with a treaty that essentially allows almost unlimited uh, expansion. It's, it's whatever the Russians can afford because there are large circumvention uh, options available on it. I guess I'm, I'm, I've about run out of time. Um, so I, I would leave you um, with um, one final thought. Um, Reagan's approach to national security, I think, served us um, very well, and the abandonment um, of his policies by subsequent administrations uh, has contributed to the current security crisis. If you're reversing a Reagan policy uh, on national security, uh, perhaps not 100% of the time, but in a substantial percentage of the time, you're making the wrong decision. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Uh, both of these presentations are uh, very excellent. Just thank you so much for being here, both of you. Uh, you know, the Heritage Foundation is very fortunate when we host programs like this to have co-sponsors or co-hosts. And I, I want to acknowledge today that the Reagan Alumni Association is one of our co-hosts and the American Foreign Policy Council is a co-host. And the third co-hosting group is the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies of the AFA. And I'm going to invite the representative of that group, uh, Peter Husey, to come and introduce the panel. Uh, Peter was active, as you heard, with Senator Nunn on Capitol Hill. Uh, he was an active proponent of the Reagan policies during the 1980s and continues to be today. Uh, Peter, please come up and welcome the rest of the panel members. Thank you so much. Thank you all for coming here. I want to say um, particularly thank you to Becky. When we went and sat next to each other at a conference, I think back in October of last year, I said to her, we really have to regain Reagan's legacy and an understanding of it. And she said, I had the same idea yesterday. So that's how this was born. And she said, would you like to handle the national security and defense aspects of Reagan's legacy. Before I introduce my uh, wonderful guests here, I want to just lay out a couple things. First, I want to say hello to Jan Nolan, who I work with. Uh, she's with George Washington University. We do a project of st uh, placing nuclear fellows on Capitol Hill. And my friend Willie Curtis, formerly with the Naval Academy, a professor who's now retired, who invited me over a period of six years to come and lecture at the Naval Academy on nuclear deterrence. And uh, it was an extraordinarily on, uh, honor to do that, Willie. Thank you for being here. I went back and looked at a 1979 Senate and House Armed Services Committee report on nuclear weapons. This is before the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. Every single nuclear weapon program was cut from the President's budget request. That's Carter's request. Everything from the B-52 to the B-1, the B-2, RDT&E. For MX missile, RDT&E, there was no procurement money, as well as, as I said, every, including the D-5 and the Ohio-class submarine, every single program was cut. And then I went and looked at 1981, Ronald Reagan's first press conference. The first question was from the AP reporter and said, do you believe in keeping the SALT II treaty, which, as you know, had been withdrawn by President Carter from the Senate after the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, and we were under no legal obligation to abide by it because we'd never ratified it. Senate had never agreed to it. And the president said, basically, how can you call that arms control? Because as we all know, it allowed a buildup to about 13,000 nuclear warheads under the SALT II treaty. And you could have, you, I was sitting in the back of the room against the wall where they put young people who were guests and I was doing some public diplomacy for them. You could hear the gasp among the press corps about the fact that he said, basically, I don't want to abide by SALT II. The second question was from the head of the UPI, and the question was, do you believe in detente and peaceful coexistence? And the president said no. And again, the audible gasp from the audience was extraordinary because the president went on to lay out what it was the Soviets were up to during peaceful coexistence and detente, and he said, I have a better idea, and that is we win, they lose, which also didn't make any for the folks there now. In 1981, we then inherited an, a narrative that we should do SALT II, which allowed a build-up to 13,000 warheads, and we should also accept peaceful detente and peaceful coexistence. 
1981. What about 2017? What did we inherit? We inherited the idea that the only way to go on nuclear weapons was towards zero. By the same people that said we should maintain SALT II. The same organizations, many of the same people, but then it was go to 13,000 warheads, that's okay for the Soviets, and now we're going to go to zero. Notice the extraordinary difference. The other thing was that we shouldn't modernize. That was the commonality. That arms control, even under SALT, don't modernize, cut peacekeeper, we don't need the MX missile, the D-5 missile was a hard target kill capable weapon, don't need that. And what's fascinating is that in 1979, at the height of the Cold War, the Senate and House were cutting every single weapon system, even though at the time, the SALT process allowed you to go to 13,000 warheads on the Soviet side. And so I think in that context, looking at where you are today, the revolution that Reagan created, which was instead of looking at the nuclear freeze as a means to get rid of everything, he looked at reductions as a servant of modernization, so we modernize while reducing as opposed to not doing anything in freezing. Completely turned arms control as traditionally thought on its head. And that's why I've asked some of my dear friends who are the top people in this business to come here and speak. First would be Frank Miller, who as you know headed the Strategic Forces Policy Office in the Office of Secretary of Defense between 1981 and 1989, and Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear Forces and Arms Control Policy between 1989 and 1993, and now he's a principal at the Scowcroft Group. We're also going to hear from Ty McCoy, who I knew during the Reagan administration because he was both acting secretary and acting undersecretary of the Air Force, and I was a consultant to the Secretary of the Air Force and the Special Assistant for Peacekeeper, Major uh, uh, General uh, Gordon Fresnel. We'll also hear from Susan Cook, who was the staff analyst for strategic defense and space arms control in the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy between 1985 and 1988, as well as special assistant to the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear Forces and Arms Control Policy between 1982 and 1985. These three extraordinary people will now talk to you about not only what their reaction to what Sven and Mark have said, but their perspective on not only the Reagan administration nuclear policy, but how they, this, what are the implications for today as we face some really very, very serious and very, very challenging uh, problems. So would you first welcome my dear friend, Frank Miller. Thanks, Peter, and uh, thanks for having me, and Becky, thanks for having me. Um, let me start by saying that I am I'm really thrilled to see all of the younger people in the audience, because over the past several months, as I've made oh, about 20 public appearances um, defending the nuclear posture review, uh, it turns out that there is a, a lack of understanding and knowledge about the past um, and about what U.S. nuclear deterrence policy is and what it is not. Um, and I'm really glad that you're here so that you can, you can um, take part in this session and, and learn from it. Um, I, I spent 1981 as an action officer in the Office of Theater Nuclear Policy where I was working on the Reagan administration's review of the enhanced radiation weapons or so-called neutron bombs and the sea launch cruise missile. And then in October of 1981, um, Richard Pearl asked me to head up the Strategic Forces Policy Office. 
It's important to set the context for, for the Reagan period. Before Mr. Reagan was elected, there was a belief in some quarters, including in the intelligence community, that the Soviet leadership anticipated achieving strategic superiority by the mid-1980s, that the United States had lost the will to compete in the strategic nuclear area. It was a time that was marked by a debate about the, the so-called window of vulnerability, which in its most basic terms meant that Soviet ICBMs could destroy US ICBM silos, and we lacked the capability to do the same. And there was a concern that that, that might encourage the Soviet leaders to contemplate first strikes. So it was an enormous change to that situation. When President Reagan took office, he said some of the things that, that were mentioned earlier. And in October of 81, he issued two documents which, which were absolutely um, critical in turning things around. The first, and I'm going to do this in reverse order, so the, the second was National Security Decision Document 13, which was U.S. nuclear targeting policy. Now that document is the presidential document that basically tells the Department of Defense how to um, handle its nuclear targeting plans. Um, that document retained the focus of the presidential directive 59 from the last year of Carter's presidency, 1980, after the scales had dropped from President Carter's eyes on the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. And what this change did was to move away from something that had prevailed during the 1970s, which was that U.S. deterrence policy was essentially based on mirror imaging. We thought about what was valuable to us, and then we, we projected that, those set of values onto the Soviet leadership, which was completely wrong. And the PD-59 work, which was carried forward by President Reagan, said focus on what the Soviet leadership thinks and values and look where they spend their money and that will tell you what is important to them. It was such a good document. It was so properly, broadly written at a presidential level that it um, guided U.S. nuclear weapons policy until 1996. That's an extraordinary run, 15 years for targeting policy. One of the things that it did was to kickstart a program of continuity of government. That is to say, to come up with a mechanism whereby even in the event of a Soviet attack, the constitutional government of the United States would survive. And why is that important, you ask? That's important so that the Soviet leadership was sent a signal that they could not decapitate the United States of America and that that we would still be able to respond effectively to any Russian nuclear use, thereby to deter that use. There was some unfortunate language in the document um, that in context said that, that um, we, were, we must be prepared to fight a protracted nuclear war and that we would wage nuclear war successfully. Um, that was a bit overblown in its rhetoric, and it came back to bite the president, and he acted swiftly to turn that around. But NSDD-13 was made all the more powerful by its conjunction with NSDD-12, which was issued the same day. And NSDD-12 made clear the Reagan administration's commitment to build a strong nuclear deterrent. It stood in sharp contrast with what many, including Soviet leaders, saw of the Carter administration's plans, dithering in decision 
and discomfort with new nuclear systems. And as my colleagues have already said, it fully modernized the entire triad. Uh, and most importantly, in my judgment, it brought about the introduction of uh, the Trident II D-5 nuclear missile, which is still in the force today. Most importantly, because that is a system which can hold any Soviet or Russian or other target at risk, hardened or otherwise. And it broke the back once deployed in the 1989-1990 in the 1989, of Soviet nuclear strategy, because now we had a survivable sea-based hard target kill weapon. There was the NSDD-12 also authorized proceeding with the nuclear sea launch cruise missile. And just, I'll take a step back just to tell a funny story. We had, we had proceeded with the nuclear, with, with Tomahawk sea launch cruise missiles, which essentially came in three variants, a nuclear land attack version, which many of us believe was important to deter Soviet strikes on our carrier task forces, a conventional land attack version that no one had much interest in, and a, a, an anti-ship version. And throughout 1981, the State Department, because it was trying to undergird the deployment of ground launch cruise missiles in Europe, tried to kill the whole Tomahawk sea launch cruise missile program, a point I reminded people of in, in 1990 as we used hundreds of Tomahawks to take down Saddam's invasion of, of Kuwait. So you've got a targeting doctrine backed up by a modernization plan. The second area that the Reagan administration broke new ground on was in its public posture. And there was an early recognition of the appeal of the nuclear freeze movement, and President Reagan moved quickly to clarify that he believed, classic quote, a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought, close quote. And I'm actually going to take a, a bit of a different um, approach from, from my colleagues. It was possible for President Reagan to have two apparently conflicting views in his head. One is that we had to have a strong nuclear deterrent to deter nuclear war. The other was that he hated nuclear weapons. And there's a book by a guy named Paul Leto, um, Ronald Reagan and His Quest to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which I commend to you. The president was horrified by the notion that nuclear weapons might be used against the American public. Um, and so he did have this quest. SDI was part of it, to abolish nuclear weapons. And at the same time, he understood that we needed a strong nuclear deterrent until nuclear weapons could be could be abolished. But in this public posture, the Department of Defense, at the urging of the President, took a very strong and clear public line. Secretary Weinberger sent a letter to the editors of about 50 newspapers around the country in August of 82 saying, we don't believe in fighting a nuclear war, we believe in preventing it. And following that, he, exchanged, he, he, he participated in an extraordinary exchange of letters with a left-of-center gentleman named Theodore Draper, the New York Review of Books that addressed in quite great detail why the administration believed deterrence was important. And his testimony in December 1982 in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, I commend to you, because again, it makes clear that this is all about preventing nuclear war, not fighting one. The, the annual statements of the, of the Secretary of Defense to Congress, which my colleagues have, have attributed somewhat to me, and I take some, but certainly not all credit for that, um, were clear and concise statements on the purpose of U.S. nuclear forces, how deterrence works, and why we need a triad. They are the best public statements, the ones issued sort of between January 83 and January 89, that exist to justify 
the existence of U.S. nuclear forces until the nuclear posture review of 2018. Very clear statements as to why we need these kinds of systems. At the same time, the administration, the Defense Department, with the President's blessing, published for eight years a, a, a book called Soviet Military Power, which again presented to the American public a series of facts as to what the Soviets were doing. You, f you find today in the debate that we're having on NPR a lack of knowledge about what the, the Russians and the Chinese are up to, such that you even get people saying that the nuclear posture view is going to start a new nuclear arms race, ignoring the fact that no new U.S. system enters the field until the late 2020s, whereas Russia and China are putting new systems in the field today. And we even used Soviet military power to message to the Soviets. The Soviets were engaged in building some very secret, deep underground command posts, and we, we basically declassified and fuzzed up what they were doing and put it in, in Soviet military power to say, we know what you're doing, we can target you there too. Um, don't think that that's going to help you fight and win a nuclear war. The administration had a deep commitment to NATO, and you can see that in the commitment to the INF systems and even the revival of the enhanced radiation weapons. You could see it in the sale of the D5 Trident SLBM to the United Kingdom. It took, when President Reagan made the decision in October, Prime Minister Thatcher came in a few weeks later and said, we'd like to stay with that system rather than what President Carter was going to sell us. I think by early spring we'd wrap that up. The Reagan administration took a radical approach to arms negotiations, and Susan Cook's going to talk to you about that, but it was basically reduce, don't cap, have tough verification, deal with breakout potential by limiting throw weight. Now, that was much maligned and, and ridiculed at the time, but it, it cut the heart out of um, half the Soviet heavy ICBM force and allowed us to reduce the possibilities of breakout. I will disagree with Sven and Mark re regarding some of the reductions uh, made in the President Bush 41 administration, as well as some of the retirements, because um, I have a very different view on those. But we can talk about that later if you want. Sorry, Mark did. Um, there was a willingness in the administration at the same time to review the nuclear arsenal and eliminate obsolete and unnecessary weapons. And if you look at that, you can see the, the Montebello Nuclear Planning Group in 1983 and the elimination of the Genie air-to-air launch missile from our inventory. Um, which had a kill probability of at least one, which was the U.S. fighter that, that shot the missile. And also the administration demonstrated a willingness to go all in in support of its strategic systems. And so when we had the big fights in Congress on the MX, the president was involved, the leadership of the Defense Department was involved. We were all in on all of that. Within the department, Secretary Weinberger undertook a rigorous oversight for the strategic modernization programs in a manner that, that is has been commended to Secretary Mattis today to ensure that those programs and initiatives remained on track. And in the mid-80s, Secretary Weinberger authorized a complete overhaul of the nuclear war plans and recast all of those war plans to be consistent with policy because the war plans had become inconsistent with presidential policy. There were two big surprises, and I'm going to stop speaking now so I can give my colleagues some time. Happy to talk about them in, in the Q's and A's. Two big surprises that, that I was involved in. The first, of course, was the Strategic Defense Initiative for which K.T. McFarlane and I wrote the speech, which was supposed to be a speech about MX. Well, it turned out a little different. 
Um, and then the Reykjavik summit uh, with Gorbachev, where there was a proposal to eliminate either all nuclear weapons or all ballistic missiles. But again, those are things we can save for Q&A. So thanks very much. Becky and uh, Peter, thanks very much for uh, hosting this, and thank you all for coming and taking time to learn about some history and uh, some uh, future uh, conditions which are part of the legacy that Ronald Reagan and a lot of the people that worked for him brought to bear to uh, keep the country safe in a very perilous time when we had fallen behind our enemies. They were very aggressive and thought they were going to run the tables and, and take over and uh, were getting careless uh, in the use of their military power and even their, their nuclear weapons. They thought that they could, could use them and win, which is a very dangerous thing because that's how wars start is through miscalculation, basically. Um, this is very important, and uh, I think it's very good that you've taken the time to dig into this, read some of this material and so forth. I, uh, I'm going to just mention a couple of macro things real briefly. I'm going to go through some things pretty fast so that there's more time for questions. Um, as you all know, uh, and I took a key from the very good big tome that Sen put together uh, about the Red Menace, I call it the Red Pandemic, which began really with Marx uh, uh, in the mid-1800s through Stalin uh, in the 1930s, where they were growing and breathing life into their movement and their ideas and their carelessness and their terror and so forth. Uh, briefly, we were allies in World War II to stop uh, another big threat, the fascists, Germany, Italy, and so forth. And then there was, after that, the rise of uh, the Reds, both in uh, China, Russia, and uh, China falls, NATO is created, U.S. strategic nuclear forces are created, and the doctrine is promulgated uh, of massive retaliation initially to make up for our weak conventional forces. Flexible response later, containment, collective defense are formulated. Proxy wars in Korea, Vietnam, and other places take place as the expansion uh, proceeds. Uh, then there's a red spread, I call it, and red schism when uh, the red menace continues to grow but splits and uh, the Chinese uh, and Russians uh, uh, are... Uh, fall apart over the Russian expansion mainly, the Chinese opening to us. Uh, terms uh, such as detente, discussions, armed control, treaty, Soviet moves in various countries, Afghanistan, Angola, Mozambique, Nicaragua, and so forth. So communism continued to spread, but at the same time it was uh, broken up a little bit by the moves of Richard Nixon uh, in going to China in 1969 and, and Kissinger. Uh, then there was red rollback. That's when I got a little bit more involved and got involved with all these fine uh, people who've done so much over the years to keep the American people educated and able to understand and keep the press honest regarding what's really going on with strategic nuclear forces in the various countries, including our own. Uh, 1981 is the fine period beginning uh, when Reagan became president brought his personal convictions and principles to the arcana of nuclear strategic forces and arms control. 
and infuse his political skills into the professional conservative national security community that had begun to some degree under Nixon and Ford. An important aside, however, it must be noted that under Nixon Ford, there were strong efforts in the mid-70s by Schlesinger uh, and uh, Rumsfeld. Uh, this is a 1978 report, which I was the editor and co-author of the SecDef report, which began to uh, take a look at uh, how weak we were. The er earlier reports that uh, we wrote, I was in the SecDef's office from 72 to 77 that Schlesinger put together when he changed the Strategic Integrated Operations Plan, a rewrite of the nuclear strike plan of the United States. I was part of that. It was, I think, NISM 246. Uh, there were three options at the time, counterforce, countercity, or everything, and that included the Warsaw Pact, Russia, and so forth. Pretty uh, much like dropping a meat axe on the problem if we were attacked. And so we rewrote it to 24 options, and Schlesinger said, no, that's too many. I can't go take 24 options to Nixon. He won't. He's not going to take 24 options. He didn't get it. And so we had to reduce it to 12, and that's when selective and flexible uh, nuclear response, and people started thinking about, well, maybe nuclear war can be fought a little bit. You know, you can either strike just the Soviet forces in the Warsaw Pact, just in the Western USSR. You can strike the Allied forces. You can strike some cities. You can strike just... Uh, Naval forces, uh, that's the way the, the, the thing was rewritten in the, in the mid-'70s, as well as leadership targets, which we worked on very much with uh, uh, demographers, as well as not only leadership targets, but something that we figured out that really got the Russian attention was demographic groups, because the Soviet Union is run by, uh, I can't quite remember, I think, great Russians, and then a little bit bigger group is white Russians, and then a bigger group is Russians, and then there's everybody else. And the guys that run everything are in a pretty culturally a tribal sort of group, and they want to keep running things. And so we let them know that we knew where they all were, and there were only about 10 or 12 million in the, in the super inside uh, demographic group that we felt were really running everything, calling the shots, getting the best jobs. And we pretty much let them. We, we, had, that, we had that group completely targeted. And so we are going to take them out and... Let, let everybody else just overrun them if it came down to a nuclear war. That got their attention, very interestingly enough. Uh, it wasn't just the leadership. It was the whole, the whole leadership, the whole crowd. It was a, there was an option that was put together for that. Uh, during that period, some great things happened. Uh, when Carter came into power after the 70s, when things began to be recognized about nuclear forces, these gentlemen here and ladies uh, were part of things such as the Committee on Present Danger, the Madison Group, uh, Team B, which began to expose the weakness of the Carter administration policies, uh, the debate and defeat of SALT II, really. Uh, I was part of that working for Garn and Laxalt, along with Mark Schneider and Sven and others, to bring to bear the knowledge that we were in a dangerous, perilous situation. And uh, then these uh, ladies and gentlemen became very educated and smart on these issues, so they could go in and staff the Reagan NSC, uh, the Department of Defense, and so forth and so on. And in that period of time, we wrote a little book to kind of get things ready. Uh, some guys and gals will remember this, a program for military independence we wrote in 1979 as part of the Madison Group. It was pretty much the beginning of the Reagan defense policy, which then was translated into a chapter here for Mandate for Leadership uh, 1980 at the Heritage Foundation for Dr. Fulner and Becky and everybody over here that became, a, a, again, a guide for the campaign, a guide to help Mr. Weinberger, who when he was notified he'd be Secretary of Defense, he called me up and said, I want the chapter. 
and I understand you're the guy that's got it. And I said, no, I don't have it. It's at the Heritage Foundation. Dr. Fulner's got it. And I can't give it to you. It's under embargo. He said, well, I'm going to be the Secretary of Defense. And I said, I'm sorry. You know, you used to be at HHS. We, you know, you shouldn't be the Secretary of Defense. I didn't say that. But uh, he said, I need it and I want it. Uh, I said, well, uh, I can't get it for you. He said, I imagine you have some galleys at home, don't you? And I said, well, uh, I do. He said, I think you better get them. You call Laxalt. You talk to Meese. Send them out here. I, I want them. This was before anybody was known he was going to be sacked out. And then, then he couldn't read it. He called and said, I can't understand the damn thing. And I thought, this is not the guy to, this is not the guy to be the sec deaf. And he said, no, it's, a, it's the abbreviations. Where's the glossary? MX, BX, PX, DX. And I said, well, the glossary is at the end of the book. He said, well, you need a glossary at the end of the chapter because that's what I'm reading. So I had to do a glossary real fast and send that out. And then, you know, later I got to see him over in the Pentagon and I went over there to work. But... Uh, I'm going to have to move along because I don't have taking too much time with anecdotes. Red retrenchment started in 8891. Uh, they fell. There was a, a, a period when we were really the dominant force, of course, with, with Reagan, and, and we got lucky for a while before everybody sprung back into action against us. Uh, the Reagan legacy. Reagan had a lot of personal experiences, they mentioned, from his uh, work and, and leadership of the Screen Actors Guild. He knew that what the communists could do, what they would do, what kind of active measures they would undertake. But he had uh, strong political convictions from that and knew that he could defeat him because he had defeated him to some degree in Hollywood. So with political patience, persistence, and courage, uh, he hung in there. He had focus, charm, and political skills as well, uh, so he didn't get rattled. He, he, he was hard-lined, but he didn't look intemperate, and that was very important in keeping the conversation somewhat civil on something very serious, strategic nuclear policy. Uh, he got a unified national security strategy put in place by a lot of smart uh, people, uh, including some here at the Pentagon and the NSC. Uh, he then made sure that was executed very tightly, and he kept things uh, moving along uh, so that things got done. He uh, and his staff got where they knew the enemy, they knew themselves, they were stressed strengths and weaknesses objectively, and they would insist on execution and keep messaging uh, optimism even while we were in somewhat of a perilous situation. Uh, so the legacy uh, is that, you know, you have to keep building, you have to keep modernizing, you have to have exercises, you have to look like you're willing to execute on a nuclear strike plan, you have to keep updating the strike plan to relate to the uh, threats and the objectives on the other side, the new weapons, the demographic changes there. Uh, and you have to create and find other political lovers that are either economic, personal, embargo, sanctions, using your intelligence to keep pressure on foreign leaders, because the foreign leaders are the ones that have their hands on the button. So the degree that you can find ways to put pressure on them outside of the nuclear forces arena, then you can also dissuade them a little bit more from thinking about using nuclear weapons. So Reagan just had a very fortunate blend of personal charm, background, experience, uh, courage uh, to uh, and a willingness and intellectual capability to learn about this, to get in here and get into town, to adapt to some of the great uh, knowledge and uh, courage and perspectives that many of the people here in this room and at the Heritage Foundation that have been here for many years writing about this and put those into practice uh, down at the White House and, and bring the American people along with him. So it was a great privilege to be a part of that and very interesting, very exciting, a lot of interesting stories, of course, that go with that period uh, of time. And uh, so we'll, uh, I'll stop there and, and let uh, Susan talk, and she'll tell you how uh, they got things going.
will try to be very quick, um, partly because I can, it's a great advantage being last, I can say yes, what they said. Um, but um, perhaps just a few, a few examples on uh, the Reagan approach to, to arms control. Uh, we've talked about peace, peace, I can't even say it, peace through strength. Um, this is negotiating through strength. The, um, the path-breaking Reagan achievements in arms control uh, would not have been possible without our modernization programs. Um, second was an, an emphasis on um, stabilize, not just numbers, um, but stabilizing force structures and how arms control could contribute to that. Um, the INF Treaty is uh, 1987, a really good example of you have to have something to negotiate with. Uh, the, the NATO position, the global zero option was very clear, very simple. If the Soviets retained their intermediate range missiles, we would deploy. If they gave them up, we would. And that option was criticized by many, including in the U.S. government, as being, you don't really want arms control because the Soviets will never accept that. Um, same for the other big feature of the INF Treaty, which was unprecedented int intrusive verification. I think there were seven different types of on-site inspection plus... Uh, data exchanges, a permanent presence at uh, the SS-20 production, former SS-20 production facility, said, the Soviets will never accept that. Well, we gave them a reason to accept that. They did not want Pershing II and ground-launched cruise missiles in Europe. And uh, when we started deploying in November of 1983, the Soviets walked from the negotiations thinking we'd say, oh dear, we don't mean it, you know, we're sorry. Um, and please come back. No, we kept deploying. So a little over a year later, they said, okay, we'll start negotiating again. And you got the INF Treaty. Of course, now the Russians are violating it, but that's maybe a story we can talk about a bit. Um, Stabilizing features, uh, really clear in uh, the START I treaty and then the START II treaty, done under, signed under uh, George H.W. Bush, but, for start, but the groundwork was set in the negotiations under, under Reagan. You've got um, heavy bomber counting rules to give an advantage to slow-flying stabilizing systems. You had a reduction by one-half in heavy ICBMs, a ban on future heavy ICBMs, a limit of 10 warheads on future ICBMs and SLBMs. And so reductions in the most dangerous destabilizing systems. You go farther with START II, where the sides agreed to abolish all MIRV ICBMs. I can't imagine that the Russians would have accepted that if we didn't have a moved ICBM, which we had with Peacekeeper. The, um, thereafter, um, arms control after um, start to those, those features, those major features that were part of the Reagan legacy get 
very much weakened. Uh, the Moscow Treaty of 2002 is just about numbers. And then uh, New START has verification, but it's weaker than, um, than the START Treaty. There's no limit on the warheads per missile, so the Soviets can do their super heavy Sarmat under the terms of the New START Treaty. No limits on modernization replacement, new kinds, and I think perhaps the uh, Russian uh, Canyon torpedo might be a new kind, uh, are just to be discussed in the Implementation Commission. And uh, for the first time, deployed missile warheads are counted as those actually carried. Start one, it was very important to have, to count the capability <coughs> of the missile. Uh, not in, in New START, which raises serious breakout considerations. Um, a little bit more on compliance and, again, the importance to the Reagan administration uh, that arms control not just be verifiable, but that it be enforced. The uh, one example is the, the Krasnoyarsk radar uh, gigantic, what is it, two football fields, huge uh, uh, radar that was illegally located uh, under the ABM treaty. And it, we discovered it in 1983. The Reagan administration, including at the very highest level, at summits, as well as ministerials, kept saying it had to be dismantled. And, uh, and again, there was a lot of pressure within the government and in Congress. Oh, it's really not that big a deal. Let it go, you know. I mean, the, we have more important things. And the administration kept saying, no, it must be dismantled. Uh, the Soviets fought that and fought that and fought that. And finally, in the fall of 1989, in September, they came to President uh, Bush to say, okay, we'll dismantle it. And the next month, uh, Edward Shevardnadze, the then foreign minister, made a speech before the Supreme Soviet calling it a blatant violation of the ABM treaty. Uh, resolve matters. The, the Obama administration position on INF violations stands in some degree of contrast. Um, Finally, I'd like to echo um, and perhaps build a little bit on uh, what my colleagues have said about the importance of outreach, both diplomatic and public, to the Reagan administration. Uh, I spent a lot of time on the road uh, speaking to groups, whether it was about, uh, and um, both governmental abroad and uh, public here, whether it was about strategic modernization, about the SDI. Several allied officials over the years have mentioned to me that no administration before or since was as punctilious as the Reagan administration in keeping allies informed. They may not have liked some of the policies. And I can think of some conversations where I was told how they didn't like some of the policies, but they could never say they were uninformed. And that was appreciated. And it was most, uh, again, the INF Treaty is a really good example 
we also had a major, major public diplomacy campaign to counteract the nuclear freeze movement here. The Soviet uh, relentless propaganda campaign in Europe uh, against INF deployments. And I believe it was November 22nd, 1983, it paid off. Uh, the German parliament voted to approve the deployment of Pershing II missiles on German, on then West German territory, and deployments began the next day. And again, the Soviets walked, thinking that that would turn the tide of public and governmental opinion. It didn't. And the, the, a new era in arms control was, was born. Thank you. Thank you, uh, all five of our panelists and speakers. They did an extraordinary job. And I hope some of you who are here today will go and look at this and go through it again as it's on the Heritage website. And we hope to and find a way to make this available to all the universities, colleges, and high schools, their history departments, and their political science departments. Because recently, Time Magazine did an article at the end of the Cold War, and they portrayed Gorbachev and did not mention the name Ronald Reagan did not mention the name of the President of the United States that pursued and successfully ended the Cold War, which tells you how the narrative of history uh, gets written over time, and it, it is critical that it be remembered and remembered accurately. I wanted to ask all five of the panelists a, a question that a number of members of Congress that I've, that I've talked to routinely say that the, the nuclear posture review has now gone through the House Armed Services Committee, the Senate Armed Services Committee, the House Appropriations Committee, without a single cut. There have been amendments to try to cut out the low-yield D5 warhead. There have been attempts to get rid of the money for the what will be a, hopefully, end a cruise missile that will have a, a nuclear low-yield weapon. And it's been quite successful, but their argument has been, you know, we have to have some component of arms control to make it palatable to a middle group of members of the House and Senate that we always have that are the people that give us that margin of when we count a vote, said, well, it, it's it's not over, not unanimous, but it's better than part of the line vote, 218 to 217 in the House or something. Given when I wrote a piece for Frank, uh, a draft I sent to Frank Miller, I said, we've got Reagan's vision was preserve slow fires, in particular our bombers, demerve land-based ICBMs, and go to sea, meaning most of your IC, most of your warheads will be on, your fast flyers will be at sea, and they're not 100% on alert. They're about, you know, pick a number, 30, 40, 50% on alert, which means any kind of preemptive disarming first strike calculation basically goes out the window if you have a demerv system, which is the whole point of START two, But it never was ratified by both the Duma and the United States Senate in the same form, so it never went into effect. And we've kind of forgotten that issue. We're now talking, people are talking about de-alerting, taking warheads off missiles, uh, you know, changing the computer so you detarget, which is what we did, supposing the Clinton administration. So my question is, do you have an arms control component, particularly when you have a 
Russian government that is violating the INF, violating, according to my friend Mark Schneider's start, new start, and not much interested in arms control. We had a program called Megatons to Megawatts where we took Russian nuclear material, took it out of their bombs, shipped it to America, put it in power plants, and burned it in nuclear power plants. As Madeleine Creedon says, that was a great program that Bush 43 initiated, and that's uh, Putin has said, put a kibosh on them all. So the question in my mind is, do we need an arms control component, or do we substitute something else as a complement to what we do in the modernization era as a way of moving forward and cementing, which is a consensus to go forward on the nuclear posture view, but it ain't. it's certainly not overwhelming, and uh, as I said, a switch of 25 votes either way could change that. So with that preliminary, Sven, we'll start with you, and then Mark, and on down the panel. Gene Rostow, and others, uh, and we in the platform and others in, in other formats uh, drew very heavily on that nonpartisan, bipartisan behavior. And there were Democrats who were Jackson Democrats, so-called. Richard Perot was one of them. The people I just mentioned were among them. The AFL-CIO was among them that were very pro-defense and very anti-Soviet on the human rights issues. And uh, they supported Reagan, and Reagan drew on them, and we briefed them, and they briefed us, and that carried forward. And so people understood from charts like this one that I, that I put up there, and I have four more. I could show you why, they, why we would talk about a first strike threat, why we would talk about the asymmetries and brief and take questions and go to the schools and go to the Congress over and over again and, and do the, this is the first of the Soviet military power reports. We did one of these a year. The first one was only on the so uh, Soviet forces, red forces. We insisted from the NSC that they add the blue so you could sh see the asymmetry. This chart uh, on the screen is based on that. I would take the, each edition of these, one a year, to the Geneva talks with the Soviets once they started. And they started in an intense way in 85 only when, when Gorbachev came in. Chernenko had approved it. Um, and I would bring five of these to the negotiation deputy, the Soviet, always a general, and always we knew the intelligence guy. And I would make public ceremony of handing him five for his information. And the first time I did it, he would say, Mr. Kramer, don't do that. I said, why not? He said, there are secrets in there. <laughs> See, and I said loudly from secrets, and people would surround us. See, from whom? From the civilians in the delegation. The Soviets did not tell their civilians, even in an arms control negotiation, what this basic data was. And I said, this is in the New York Times, the Washington Post. This is studied in our universities. You need to open up how we're going to agree on what reductions to make from what database unless we have the basic information and you have it. He never said it's wrong. He never said it's a lie. And they could not refute that. And the same thing happened in the Congress. And if we did anything like this today, we should draw bipartisan, nonpartisan support of what? Of facts, of asymmetries, of Soviet violations. We issued the uh, first violations report 
uh, from the White House in 1984 in January. We had it supported by the General Arms Control um, Advisory Commission Committee, uh, the GAC. These were not, that was nonpartisan. We had commissions for other things. We had verification testimony on nonpartisan basis. That's how you get it through. That's my answer. Thank you. Mark? Uh, your question, do we uh, need arms control? Uh, okay. Thank you. Uh, do we need arms control is, uh, or is there something better? Arms control, generally speaking, hasn't worked very well. Uh, one of the major reasons has been noncompliance with these agreements, uh, Russia, but not certainly not limited to uh, to, to Russia. It's uh, it's in many respects endemic uh, in in the uh, the multilateral uh, agreements. Um, Ronald Reagan uh, said in 1982, and I suspect probably wrote the speech. Um, Simply collecting agreements will not bring peace. Agreements genuinely reinforce peace uh, only when they are kept. Otherwise, we are building a paper castle that will be blown away um, in the winds of war. Now, as I mentioned in, in my talk, um, Reagan terminated the SALT I and SALT II treaties, uh, agreement and treaty, um, because of multiple Russian violations of, the, of them. And it actually had an enormous positive effect on, on arms control. Uh, I mean, we within months of, of this action, we, we, we achieved the great Reykjavik breakthrough on both INF and the STAR Treaty. Now, as, as Susan uh, pointed out, um, the fact that we were deploying uh, the uh, intermediate, medium-range, um, actually medium-range missiles in, in Europe had a big um, role to play uh, in this. The other, the other thing, of course, was the Russians are totally paranoid that everything they that they see in Aviation Week they assume is true. Uh, they they you know even if it's just discussion of a concept that never got anywhere. And uh, we had a, a program to put a, uh, uh, a an earth penetrator warhead, which was much more effective against uh, hard deeply buried targets on the Pershing. Now the, the program was canceled. But the, the you know the Russians be, uh, believe their own propaganda, and uh, that was also one of the the big reasons we made um, the Reykjavik uh, breakthrough. Now to contrast uh, this with the INF treaty, um, you had um, Barack Obama in. Um, uh, let me see if I can find the the exact uh, quote um, here. Um, Okay, rules must be binding, violations must be punished, words must mean something. Well, he, um, uh, during his administration, um, there was a major violation, at least one, probably more than one, of, of the INF Treaty provisions. Um, um, Michael Gordon, um, in uh, writing in the New York Times, in um, I guess it was January 2014, um, stated um, that um, the United States informed its NATO allies this month that Russia had tested a new ground launch cruise missile, raising concerns about Moscow's compliance um, with uh, a landmark arms control uh, accord. And he also said uh, that um, by the end of 2011, um, 
the intelligence uh, community or, uh, believed that it, it, it was clearly a uh, major compliance concern. The original Obama response to this uh, in the State Department's um, 2012 report was a sentence, actually two sentences, which read the following. The parties uh, to the treaty last met in the Special Verification Commission in October 2003. There have been no issues raised in the intervening period. And um, that, uh, that statement was repeated verbatim on an annual basis until the decision um, uh, apparently made uh, uh, at a high level to, to first leak this decision I mean, the leaks, the existence of the, of the, of the Russian program, and then actually can confirm it in a, compliance, a formal compliance report in, in 2014. They talked about responding to it, but they did absolutely nothing. They left office with the, um, the missile in the process of actual deployment, and Michael Gordon did a, another story um, in um, uh, early uh, uh, 2017, that the the, uh, the the Russians had had begun the deployment on this, uh, unlike the um, well, somewhat like it actually, uh, the uh, the uh, Trump administration confirmed that uh, immediately. So uh, it's a completely different attitude you you will see um, um, between um, the Reagan and, and you know the, the Trump administration on compliance issues, and that's that's encouraging. Um, Will we have future arms control negotiations? I think we will. Are they likely to be more successful um, uh, than previous ones? I have a lot of doubts about that. Uh, I think Trump administration has a lot of great people in place, and, and they'll do a better job negotiating it. But you've got to deal with compliance. If you, I mean, you can, you, can, you can negotiate the best agreement that's humanly conceivable. If you don't deal with compliance, it doesn't matter. Thank you. Thank you. So I think the, the first the first thing to say is that is that we need to accept that arms control treaties are not ends in and of themselves. Uh, the the NPR is very good on this point. Um, arms control treaties are designed to increase um, stability and to provide enhanced security. When a treaty fails to do that, then then it has lost its purpose. And when treaties are violated then the treaty, the treaty parties that continue to comply actually suffer in their national security, whereas the violator gains advantages. Russia today is a serial violator of arms control treaties. Today, right now, Russia stands in violation of the following. The Helsinki Final Act, the, um, the Budapest Memorandum, where they guaranteed the territorial integrity of Ukraine, the Istanbul Accord, where they promised to get their military forces out of Moldova and Georgia, the nuclear initiatives uh, signed by Bush 41 with with um, Gorbachev and then with Yeltsin, uh, the Open Skies Treaty, the Vienna Document, uh, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, we got full proof, uh, the Chemical Weapons Convention, and the INF Treaty. Um, you can't continue to do arms control negotiations with a country that continually violates its commitments. Now, you know, were Russia to somehow come back into compliance with its treaties, and were we somehow able to get strict verification on the lines of the original START treaty or the INF treaty, arms control may be something we can talk about again. But right now, to consider plunging headlong into a new agreement 
given eight existing treaties which are being violated, suggests that that you don't care about the violations. And that, that would be a huge mistake and, a, and exactly the wrong signal to send to um, Sorry, Vladimir. I think that um, what Frank said is, is very much the case. It needs to be uh, communicated and elevated more to the public and through the media, which is very difficult because they don't want to carry this type of uh, negative message. Uh, the uh, Potentially the a call for some senators in order to placate other senators uh, that a new uh, committee, uh, potentially a committee that has some congressional mandate on uh, arms control, intelligence, and compliance, or some name like that, could be thrown out as a way to uh, try to bring arms control uh, to, to, to the front, uh, particularly along the lines of delving into these violations, uh, making a list of them, explaining them, uh, putting the pressure on the members who want to talk about arms control and want to have an arms control component, making it clear that, okay, if you want to have an arms control component and you want to talk about arms control, we'll talk about it. And the first thing that needs to be talked about is all the violations and the continuing uh, arrogance uh, and dangerous uh, behavior of uh, the Russians and to, to some degree potentially rope in the uh, the Chinese uh, and some of the things they're doing, although we have not really had arms control treaties with them, but it may be time to uh, calibrate uh, their behavior, uh, even though it's not a violation directly of an arms control treaty, uh, you know, destabilizing type behavior uh, as well. So whether that's an outside group that's a remake of the Committee on Present Danger or something that has a little bit more of a blessing, uh, such as the U.S.-China uh, Security Commission, uh, that might be some way to allow people who want to talk about it, uh, to talk about it and say, okay, come and talk about it and bring your, your uh, concern and we'll, we'll talk about it and bring, and bring the facts to bear uh, on this and, uh, you know, use that as a way to get some uh, public uh, understanding and knowledge of what's going on in this area. Susan. Um, I, I, too, would echo what, uh, what Frank said, um, adding... Uh, one or two points quickly. One is that you have to have something to negotiate with, uh, which we really saw in 2013. Uh, people may have forgotten that um, President Obama made a proposal for follow-on um, arms control negotiations, both strategic and uh, and shorter range systems. Um, the Russians just dismissed the proposal, the idea of any negotiations out of hand. There wasn't anything left that they wanted from us, uh, as near as I can tell, not to put too fine a point on it. And <clears throat> I don't know that that will change that much with the strategic modernization program, because it's hard for me to identify something in the program that we might be willing to trade. For example, uh, for me, the biggest thing on my arms control agenda would be uh, Russian demerving. Uh, 
or at least some kind of reduction in uh, some kind of constraints going back to start one on what they can do in that area. Well, we don't have any MERVed ICBMs. Uh, and I don't think the ground-based strategic deterrent is designed to be MERVed. So, you know, what is the, what incentive do they have? I don't know the answer. One arms control issue that faces the administration in the very near future is the question about whether to extend a new start. It uh, otherwise expires on uh, February 2021. And so the beginning of an administration second term or not, is, is always chaotic. Uh, and so that issue would have to be, would have to be faced. Uh, and the big question is, is New START, for all its faults, better than nothing, particularly on the verification end of things? Particularly the on-site inspections aren't what um, START treaty were but is something better than nothing? I don't have an answer to that, but I think we have to address the question. Thank you. Well, well thank you. <clears throat> We're just about at the witching hour for ending the program, and I wonder if there's anyone in the audience who does have a quick question they'd like to raise for one or more of the panel members. Right here on the front row, will you stand up and wait for our mic, introduce yourself. We, many of us know you, but we'll allow you to introduce yourself to the watching audience. Thank you very much. Henry Now from George Washington University. Uh, just a quick comment. Uh, as Sven knows, I was on the NSC um, uh, staff at the same time that he was, and none of Reagan's strategic programs could have been achieved without the economic program. Uh, I served on the economics cluster, so it's an area for the, you know, to think about in terms of Reagan's legacy, how he turned around the U.S. and the world economy. The question has to do with SDI. This was a major revolution in thinking about how to deter, in other words, not by mutual assured destruction, but by mutual assured protection. And my question is why there was so little follow-up on it. Reagan never seemed to be so committed to it that he got Congress involved, that he got the public involved in trying to understand what he was doing by way of reacting to mutual assured destruction and trying to find a more humane way to deter, because he was, in fact, as the panel suggested, determined to deter. I wouldn't fault him on that at all. I think he, he was consistent in Reykjavik, for example, where he walked out on Gorbachev, who wanted to restrict everything to the uh, testing to the laboratory. Uh, and he said, in exchange for eliminating all ballistic missiles, and if you remember the press conference afterward, there were very, very senior people other than Reagan who looked very dour about his rejecting that wonderful but tragic trade that, that was being proposed by Gorbachev. He wanted SDI more than anything else, and he realized that it was insurance, it was protection, it was against proliferation. It... it took over the fact that, that this was a we had bilateral treaties with the Russians. The Koreans weren't affected by it. The Chinese weren't affected by it. They weren't limited. And the Russians were violating that ABM treaty anyway in about seven different respects. Very clear, one uh, violation was Krasnoyarsk. He emphasized that radar violation. But the, the others, uh, 
testing of air defenses and uh, ABM defenses, um, all kinds of things. Uh, and they're in the compliance reports. We didn't have a dis uh, good discussion on that. And, and people just didn't want anything, some parallels to right now, anything that Mr. Reagan said were opposed by quite a few people because he said it. And mutual assured destruction was considered as late as in the Obama period as the centerpiece of, I mean, of the uh, Clinton period, the centerpiece of strategic mm -hmm. stability, the cornerstone. It was, that was mad. To destroy each other, mutual annihilation? That shouldn't be. It should have been deterrence, not annihilation. McNamara and the systems analysts came up with that for Mr. Kennedy in the 63 period. And unfortunately, Mr. Nixon combined that treaty. But Reagan was brave enough and moral enough and strategic enough to emphasize STI to his dying day, I think. Peter, you want to add to that? Henry, let me, it's a good question. When you, I started a seminar series on nuclear deterrence and missile defense as part of the Scowcroft Commission report, and I still run it. And I've done over somewhere around 1,700 events. Missile defense was half of all my seminars starting in 80, after March of his speech in March of 83. A number of things happened. One is that missile defense was used as, I think, the primary lever to end the Cold War. I think it was beyond any doubt. Unfortunately, when the, when the Senate flipped to the Democrats in 87, money for missile defense was diminished. The Bush 41 era, particularly Keith Payne, who's not here, was negotiating with the Russians to do a global protection against limited strikes, GPALs, which Yeltsin announced at the United Nations he was in favor of. But then certain powers that be during the 1992 campaign pulled it back. And when, when Clinton came in, the first thing, Les Aspen, who was my congressman, I went to college and I got to love him, unfortunately got up and said, I'm going to take the stars out of Star Wars. And not only that, cut 40% of all the theater missile defense systems. And that took us an entire decade until 1999 to pass the Missile Defense Act, which said it is now the policy of the United States to build a missile defense for the country, but again, it said limited and when technologically possible, which had various interpretations. And so we basically, over a period of end of the Cold War to Bush 43, when we deployed something in 2003 and 4, we lost 15 years because of the change in the environment, the end of history. Everything was fine. We didn't have to worry about this anymore. And now, if you go and look at the COCOM testimony on the Hill from all our commanders around the world, their number one request is missile defense. And Bob Kaplan is right when he remember he wrote The Curse of Geography when he said from North Korea all the way through the south of Asia all the way through the Middle East is one great big overlapping missile range from one country after another because missiles now, when you get the Houthis launching what, 500 rockets into Saudi Arabia and the United Emirates, and you got terror group like Hezbollah and Iranian terror groups throwing rockets from the north into Israel. Think, think of what would have happened if no missile defense was available in 2015 when Hamas launched more rockets on Israel than Adolf Hitler launched on Great Britain in all of World War II. And we're not talking about the German army. We're talking about Hamas, a terror organization. So I think you, you're right, there was a pause, and that was politically, 
but and we're behind the eight ball, just as Mark pointed out, we're behind the eight ball on nuclear deterrence as well. But thank God we have what we have. Because I think of what would have happened if Aspen's decision in 1993 was carried out through today, which is we basically put everything on the back burner and did R&D only. Okay, we're going to have a one final question here, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, Ambassador, don't feel like you need to stand up. Just. Not a question, a quick uh, um, <clears throat> description. The best communicator we've had of any president has been Ronald Reagan. I was a deputy director of uh, USIA, and uh, he gave us extreme ex instructions. We had libraries. We had, even in Moscow, we had a USIA office. <laughs> Can we sign you up again? Say again? Can we sign you up again? We <laughs> okay. Then he asked me after two years, he was a communicator, to go over to the State Department as ambassador and special advisor to Schultz. And then um, Schultz asked me to talk to all of the assistant secretaries and come up with some recommendations, and which I did. And I, my main one was we needed undersecretary for public diplomacy. And uh, you mentioned the public diplomacy. It's extremely important, and I don't think our government is doing enough now without USIA to explain our positions. Okay, and that was Ambassador Gil Robinson who served, as he mentioned, President Reagan. Well, listen, we are going to have to wrap up today. We're out of uh, time, but thank you all very much for being here. Uh, I think this has been a very, very important panel. It's just one element of the Reagan legacy that I think we need to uh, reignite interest in and knowledge about uh, so that not only the American people have a recollection of the foundations that the Reagan administration laid, but the current leadership team in Washington, D.C. understands the shoulders on which they can stand to do the right thing. So thank you all for being here today. Let's uh, thank, thank our panel once again. Appreciate your time and attention. That's the best collection of information.